You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. You know, on personal levels, there's a reading of reality that leads us to believe that we're stuck in our current state of affairs. Some of us feel stuck in the same job, stuck in the financial loop of just getting by, stuck always checking the box single or divorced, stuck in a marriage that seems doomed for failure, stuck in a string of bad luck. And as our minds become stressed because we're stuck, our hearts feel strained, our lives get shaken, and we slowly lose hope. And so we end up discouraged. On top of it all, hope seems reserved for those with some sort of super faith, the kind of faith that uh, produces this brand of hope that's reserved for the Mother Teresa's, the daughter Martin Luther King's, or maybe people we know like Francis B. in Kenya, or Milton Jones and Amarillo. Yet being filled with a faith-formed courage that hopes against hope and clings to mere Possibility doesn't seem possible for us ordinary people. And there's a truth associated with all human beings. Whether Christian or non-Christian, we all need hope. If we don't have hope, we lose everything. Viktor Frankl is one of the most important people from the last 100 years, in my opinion. He wrote this brilliant book called Man's Search for Meaning. I would encourage you uh, maybe to pick this up. He wasn't a Christian. He was a Jewish psychologist. He lived in Austria and was born in 1920. And he was in his early 20s when Austria was conquered. And he and his wife, his young wife, and everyone else they knew were sent to Nazi ghettos. They were deported, deported to the Nazi ghettos where Frankl worked as a general practitioner in a clinic as a psychologist. And then he and his young wife were eventually transported to a concentration camp in Dachau. And when it was all said and done, only he and one of his sisters survived. And the first half of this book, he tells the story of what the two and a half years of captivity was like. And part of, the, part of this book, he tells a story and frames it within this idea of hope. He was, he was such an academic that the only way he could cope with all of the death of being in this concentration camp was to, to analyze it. Now, he had to do manual labor like every other Jew who was in the concentration camps. But he began to do ad hoc therapy with some of his brothers and sisters of his country. He was obsessed with how people were processing all of the horror. And he was obsessed with why some were doing well and some were not. And so he talks about life in the concentration camp and how the same kind of loss that people experience in life, like that same loss of loss of spouse or loved ones, body gets old, loss of way of life, lots of mobility. He talked about how all of that that usually takes decades for someone to experience in the, in the concentration camp under Nazi leadership, all of that was happening within a year. And he wanted to measure the weight of that trauma and the heartache, and the hopelessness, or the hope that kept people alive. The only people he found that were able to survive were the ones who had some sort of hope. He says that some coped like mountain lions, and they became brutal. 
They just numb themselves up and in their anger and their aggression and in their hope to survive was willing to do anything it took and became brutal. Some became apathetic and numb and just resigned themselves to an existence. He said some would fantasize about how they would rebuild their lives when they left the concentration camp and how they would get their family back or get a new family and how they would get their jobs back and how they would get their houses back and how they would get their strength back and go back to the things they loved. It's what psychologists call displacement. And when it was all said and done, when everyone was released and he went back to follow up on those who held that sort of fantasy they were either more depressed or they had lost the will to live because, after all, no one was able to hold on to that detail of fantasy. But he knew others who had a singular hope. It wasn't this narrative of life. It was a very simple and singular hope. And it was a simple and singular hope that organized their lives in such a way that they were able to not just survive but to live even in the concentration camps, and were able to live even after released. He told the story of a baker who all the baker thought about, the only thing the baker kept in front of his mind was just the joy that he had of making bread and the joy that he would once again have to make more bread. That was it. He told about a story of musicians who loved music and made music, and the only hope that they held on to while living in the concentration camp was just making music again. It wasn't performances and concerts. It was just they wanted just to make music again. It was a simple hope, and it was a hope that transcended time and transcended place, and it was a simple hope that organized their lives around this particular story of vocation or this hobby, and it was a hope that could not be taken away from them by another person because no one could tell the baker he couldn't make bread. No one could tell the musician that she couldn't make music. And Frankel was getting at what Peter was trying to tell us. What he was trying to tell the Christians scattered out through Roman Empire. That if we're going to live, our lives need to be organized around hope. To the Christians living near the Black Sea, Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into, say it with me, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You're being protected by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, though now for a short time you have had to struggle in various trials so that the genuineness of your faith more valuable than gold, which perishes through though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You love Him, though you have not seen Him. And though not seeing Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated They inquired into what time or what circumstance the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when He testified in advance to the messianic sufferings, talking about the sufferings of Jesus as the King, and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel, which means good news 
to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels desire to look into these things. Now, really quickly, in the Greek, this is all one long run-on sentence. Our English translations couldn't handle all that, right? Like, neither could our English teachers, or my wife for that matter, who always helps me with my English. What I like about Greek is that you don't really have to know grammar. You can just press in. One long sentence to communicate one major idea. That God, through Christ, has given us a new birth. Say new birth. New birth. That language is intentional, right? A new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus stands as the greatest interruption to life something that I've called before an interruption of hope that the world will ever see, one that interrupts human history and inalterably changes both present and future. For the Christian, the resurrection becomes the promise of new strength, right? New courage, a new outlook on life. The resurrection interrupts all of life's desperate complaints, discourses of despair. The resurrection even interrupts our own comforts and way of life sometimes. The resurrection is an interruption of hope because it interrupts the power of sin and death and all that is wrong in this world. The resurrection becomes hope into new birth and it becomes a living hope because we can look our kids in the eyes and say, because Jesus is Lord, and if you've made him your Lord, you can live life free of fear. Now, we as Christians who are raising up these kids and those of us who are part of this church family have to model that though, don't we? See, sin was defeated as in the resurrection because the chains of sin were broken. Death was defeated. That's what the Bible teaches. That's the faith that we proclaim. That's our confession. That because Jesus is risen, death was defeated by the power of God because Jesus overcame death. And in doing so, reversed the curse. Sin, suffering, sorrow, sickness, grief, pain, betrayal, shame, fear. Though it's still with us, though we still feel it, Though the Christians living under the empire of Rome and all the persecution, though they still felt it, they weren't born into that and that alone. They were born again into something else that was a living hope. Their feet no longer walked the Roman soil as Romans or Jews made Roman. Their feet were new feet born again in Christ who walked around as citizens of the kingdom of God. And there was a time it meant something. That the resurrection was hope for a broken world because... It can and has the power to dislocate us from all that is wrong and turn our eyes back to God and Jesus Christ and remind us that there's a new kind of life available now. It's a hope that pushes against despair is what resurrection is. This is what Peter thought. Peter thought that this hope could push against despair, that it was a love that could drive out fear, that it was a peace that could stand underneath the weight of the chaos, and that it was the truest kind of freedom that could never actually be taken away. Because, as Peter would later say, like Jesus, we too can entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly and is the shepherd and guardian of our souls. In the resurrection of Jesus, we're offered a new hope and a new way of seeing life lived in a society that's filled with anxiety and fear. Don't you feel it, man? Don't you feel the anxiety and fear of a society? I mean, do you feel the anxiety of the bank account, of the job, of the of the strained relationships, of the wars and all the rumors of wars and all that's going on in the world and all of the dark and sadness, that, that darkness and sadness that seems to just live among us, yet there's, there stands in the midst of all this, this crucified Christ who couldn't stay dead, who as the risen Lord and ascended Lord looks to us and says, trust me, 
you have a living hope. It's not a one-time hope that happened. It's a hope that happens. On and again and again. It's a living hope that keeps on happening. And that has the power to strengthen the living. And he says, Peter, this new birth, this being born again by faith in Jesus Christ is what leads you to this hope that keeps on happening. And see, for the, for the early church, there was a reordering power of this hope. It's a living hope, powerful enough to reorder frustration in any situation, to reorder loneliness and sadness and shame and depression. We still feel it, but it reorders because it no longer has to have the power on us because we're no longer alone. It's like what German theologian Hirgen Motman once said in a book that he wrote about hope. He said this, Those who hope in Christ can no longer put up with reality as it is, but begin to suffer under it to contradict it. Peace with God means conflict with the world, for the goad of the promised future stabs inexorably into the flesh of every unfulfilled present. And he goes on to say such hope makes the church the source of continual new impulses towards the realization of righteousness, freedom, and humanity here in light of the promised future that is to come. What he's saying is because of hope, God's made promises that he's going to keep. And because Christ has been risen, he creates a new people. And when a new people decide to take seriously the hope of the risen Christ and their new citizenship beyond every other citizenship, and they start loving people as made in the image of God, and love begins to drive out fear rather than the other way around, that becomes a contradiction to the world. And that becomes an unsettledness within us that says, I'm no longer stuck having to trust that this is all life has to offer. I don't have to play in accordance to the rules of the world where I got to get before mine is gotten, where I got to eat it before it's taken away, where I've got to have all these fears of scarcity that there's, everything's going to run out, that I'm the citizen of a kingdom that's never going to be in trouble and his economy is strong because Jesus is Lord and he's risen and I've been born again into a living hope. And this requires faith. This requires a choice. This isn't going to be about feelings. The feelings are still going to be what they are. This is about feelings. This is about chains. Not change. It's about chains. It's about being imprisoned to something. See, every human being is going to be imprisoned to something. Frankel was imprisoned to something. The question is, will we be prisoners of hope? Will we see that there is a bloodstained cross and an empty tomb that no man, our kingdom, our country can take away? We're a people of living hope. Of living hope. And it's a hope that leads us to believe that there's nothing in my life that God can't redeem. Even the worst possible thing, and that's death. God's redeeming that too. There's a book I've been reading called Barking to the Choir, The Power of Radical Kinship. It's written by Father Greg Boyle. Greg Boyle was appointed pastor of Dolores Mission Church located in East Los Angeles, and it was the poorest church in the city, but not only that, it was the most violent area in L.A., and it was mostly and, well, singularly gang violence. In 1988, Boyle and the church, along with other members of the neighborhood, began addressing the escalating problems and unmet needs of gang-involved youth. 
And so they began to develop positive opportunities for them, like including establishing an alternative middle school, a daycare program, and created opportunities for the older gang members to find um, legitimate work. Bull and the church went so far as to creating something called that, well, something in a, the, the social enterprise, a business. They, they created a bakery, and they would hire the gang members in this bakery, and they called it Homeboy Bakery. And as the years went by, the success of this bakery turned into many, many more industries, many more businesses, and it led to jobs for all of these gang members and became this independent nonprofit organization called Homeboy Industries. Today, Homeboy Industries in East L.A. is the largest and most successful gang rehabilitation and reentry program in the world. Homeboy offers an exit ramp for those stuck in the cycle of violence and incarceration with a holistic approach with free services, supports 10,000 people, man, 10,000 men and women in a year as they overcome their past, reimagine their futures, break the intergenerational cycles of game violence. There's therapeutic and educational offerings. It's this holistic thing that Father Greg Boyle and the church there created because they had hope. And in this book, which I want to read section to you, he tells a story. The story of a guy that he names Sergio. Here's how it goes. Once I was invited to speak to 600 social workers in Richmond, Virginia. Often I'll say yes to invitations like these without studying the details too carefully. I assumed the Richmond event was some keynote or lunchtime address, but when I later read the not-so-fine print, I realized that I committed myself to a day-long in-service on gangs from 9 to 5 p.m., and I was going to be the only speaker. I made this discovery a week before I was to fly, so I invited two trainees, former gang members, into my office, DeAndre and Sergio, and he said, look, you're flying with me to Richmond, Virginia. I want you to get up and tell your stories. Take your time because we've got a long day to fill. Sergio was in his mid-twenties, a tattooed gang member who had served considerable time in prison. He'd also been homeless for a stretch and an active heroin addict for a longer one. I knew patches of his backstory, drinking and sniffing glue at eight, which eventually led to crack, PCP, and, fam- and, and finally heroin. He had been first arrested at the age of nine for assault and breaking and entering, jumped into a gang at the age of 12, and did two and a half years for stabbing his mom's boyfriend who tried to abuse him. Sergio began at Homeboy in what we call the Humble Place, which is the janitorial crew. But in time, he became a valued member of our substance abuse team, now solid in his own recovery and helping younger homies try sobriety on for size. As he stood before the audience in Richmond, Sergio began his story in an offhanded way. He said, I guess you could say my mom and me, well, we didn't get along so good. I think I was six when he looked at me and said, why don't you kill yourself? You're such a burden to me. 600 social workers gasped in unison. Sergio fanned his hands like he was trying to put out a fire. It sounds way worser in Spanish, he said reassuringly. Everyone laughed. We all got whiplash for moving from from gasp to laugh. He's one sentence into his story, and we all need a laugh. He goes on to say, I think I was like nine years old 
when she drove me to the deepest part of Baja, California, walked me up to the door of this orphanage and said, I found this kid. He paused, his voice beginning to quietly buckle, and he said, I was there 90 days before my grandmother could get out of my mom where she had dumped me. My grandmother came and rescued me. He searched for what to say next. My mom beat me every single day of my elementary school years with things you could imagine and a lot of things you couldn't. Every day my back was bloodied and scarred. In fact, I had to wear three t-shirts to school each day. The first one because the blood would seep through. The second because you could still see it. Finally, with the third t-shirt, you couldn't see no blood. Kids at school would make fun of me. Hey, fool, it's 100 degrees. Why are you wearing three t-shirts? He paused again so his emotions could catch up to him, momentarily knocking the wind out of his speech. For a time, he seemed to be staring at a piece of his story that only he could see. I wore three t-shirts, he finally said, swallowing back his tears. Well into my adult years, because I was ashamed of my wounds. I didn't want no one to see them. But then he suddenly found a higher perch upon which to rest, and he said, But now, now I welcome my wounds. I run my fingers over my scars. My wounds are my friends. After all, he said, how can I help others to heal if I don't welcome my own wounds? There's a reordering power to hope, the Christian hope. Sergio knows it. Boyle knows it. The early church knew it. They believed the words of Peter that they had been born again and we're relearning how to live because of this new birth as foreigners who were born in Rome, as foreigners to the Roman Empire and any other empire of the world. They were born again in Christ as citizens of God's kingdom in it, and it reordered their life. It reordered their witness. In about... Oh, 105, 110 A.D. There was a man named Aristides. He was an Athenian. He was a philosopher. He was an agnostic, or he was a he was a philosopher. He was a he was a worshiper of other gods. He eventually became a Christian. And in speaking of the kind of hope that reordered lives of Christians, he testified of this. He said, Christians walk in all humility and kindness, and falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And from the widows, they do not turn away their countenance, and they rescue the orphan from him who does them violence. And he who, is, who has gifts to give, who is not without grudging. And when they see the stranger, they bring him to their dwellings and rejoice over him as a true brother, for they do not call brothers those who are after the flesh but those who are in the Spirit and in God. But when one of their poor passes away from the world and any of them sees him, then he provides for his burial according to his ability. And if they hear that any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs. And if possible, that he may be delivered, they deliver him. See, that's the witness of the early church. They heard Peter. Aristides saw this in the church. Father Gregory Boyle knew this in the East L.A. 
ghettos of gang violence. And the thing is, is you can know this in Williamsburg, Virginia too. What makes them different from us? Time, space. What makes them the same as us? Christ. Same hope in them as the hope in you. This new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's this hope that compelled Peter one day as he stood before the governing political leaders of his own place. In Acts chapter 4, verses 19, they told him that he should obey the law. Obey the law and do what we want you to do. And Peter and John answered, look, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide, for we're unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. See, hope at that point became a conflict with the world. Later on, he even said in Acts chapter 5, it says in verse 29, Peter and the apostles replied to them, we must obey God rather than people. Hope wasn't something that the early church embraced so they could die well. It was something they embraced so they could live well. And that's the thing about us. For us, a lot of times, hope is about going to heaven when we die. But it's about living now. It's about living a life of power now And it's a power that reorders our loves and reorders our loyalties and can reorder our life. As a matter of fact, those who do not embrace this hope, this new birth into a living hope, they live a different kind of life of disordered loves. I want you to listen to what the church leader Ignatius once said. He was an elder of the churches in Antioch. He was born in AD 35. He was born in AD 35. And he wrote this letter to the churches in Smyrna in about 107 AD. He said, consider how contrary... To the mind of God are the heterodox in regard to the grace of God which has come to us. Just think of that as like false Christians. They have no regard for charity, none for the widow, the orphan, the oppressed, none for the man in prison, the hungry, or the thirsty. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not admit that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, the flesh which suffered for our sins and which the Father in His graciousness raised from the dead. The hope that the early church had was a hope that reordered their life to press against injustices of this world and to make sure that no one among them had to be alone. See, this was a way of living, not a going to heaven when I got, and it's not a God loves me, 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 me. Like, like it wasn't a me, 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 me thing. It was an us, 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 us thing. It was a we thing. It was a new humanity thing. Matter of fact, Ignatius, later on, he writes to Christians living in Ephesus, and they were falling into false beliefs by false teachers. Listen to what he said. He said, take heed then, often to come together to give thanks to God. He's talking about their assembly, so let's listen as an assembled people. Let's step inside this for a minute. Ignatius, a church leader who studied at the feet of a man who studied at the feet of John, the apostle. Let's think that through. Let's receive this as the people. Take heed then often to come together to give thanks to God and to show forth His praise. For when you assemble frequently in the same place, the powers of Satan are destroyed. You hear that? (laughs) And the destruction at which he aims is prevented by the, read it with me, Unity of your faith. Nothing is more precious than peace by which all war both in heaven and where? Is brought to an end. None of these things is hid from you if you perfectly possess that faith and love towards Christ Jesus. There's the if, right? These are the beginning and the end of life. Faith the beginning, love the end. When these two are found together, there is God. And everything else concerning right living follows from them. No one professing faith sins. 
And what he means by that is practices a lifestyle of sin. No one possessing love hates. Well, Christian, do we hate? A tree is known by its fruit. So those who profess to belong to Christ will be known by what they do. For the work we are about is not a matter of words here and now, but depends on the power of faith and on being found faithful to the end. Ignatius is trying to say this hope reorders living, not just dying. In 110, Ignatius was executed by the state because he refused to pledge his allegiance to Caesar because in his own words, he already had a king. See, it's similar to what Dr. Brueggemann once said. He said, hope on one hand is an absurdity too embarrassing to speak about because it flies in the face of all those claims we have been told are facts. Hope is the refusal to accept the reading of reality, which is the majority opinion. And one does that only at great political and existential risk. On the other hand, hope is subversive for it limits the grandiose pretension of the present, daring to announce that the present to which we have all made commitments has now been called into question. Here's what that means. All the claims of society and all of its promises of life and hope and peace and love and joy, all of that freedom, especially in America, freedom and rights, See, the hope of resurrection calls that into question. But too many of us have answered that as if that's the only thing to live for. But the hope of resurrection and new birth that we're given calls all of that into question. The cancer diagnosis that I received called into question. The fact that I'm going to die or told that I'm going to die still called into question. Because of the hope of resurrection that I should keep them out of my country, out of my home, out of my house, out of my heart, called into question. That I should judge another by the color of their skin or by their political beliefs, called into question. That I'm the sum total of my bank account and the success of my neighbor, called into question. That I'm my waist size or the style of my hair, called into question that I'm as good as I am a parent and that's who I am, called into question. Called into question because I've been born anew into a living hope, not a one-time happen hope, into a living hope that calls into question all the claims that reality makes because now I live for something more and something greater that has a demand on my life in such a way that re reorders how I see the world. It reorders how I see my neighbor. It reorders how I see myself. It reorders how I understand life lived in this world because, see, it's that sort of faith that leads me to this place every week when the Christians assemble to gather around the table where I receive in my mouth and in my body the body and the blood of Jesus Christ that reorders my entire life where I know that whatever junk I've been carrying around, even like Sergio, my own wounds that I've been hiding, that I can welcome them because even those wounds and those scars are called into question because Jesus couldn't stay dead. So my question is simple. 
What organizes your life? What organizes your priorities, Christian, brother, sister? And you know what organizes your life ultimately by how we treat our neighbors, really. Like, that's the fruit. That's what Ignatius is getting at. Like, whether we turn away the poor, whether we turn away the broken, whether we turn away the widow or the orphan, whether we want to hate rather than love, that's how we know what's organizing our lives. I suggest to you that in the name of Jesus, that the hope of Christ and being born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus is enough to reorder our lives and is what we should organize our lives around. You are loved by a God who gives dead things life. Whatever it is in your life that makes your heart or your soul or your mind feel dead, know the God who raised Jesus from the dead can raise you from the dead too. And when we come to the bread and the cup, when we come to the table of the Lord, that is what we proclaim. The Christ who lived, who died, who's risen, and who is coming again.